We thank you for your grace, God, that has been demonstrated so perfectly for us on the cross. We thank you that it is your kingship, God, that has led us to repentance and to an everlasting life with you. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you will be honoured in our fellowship today as we come to your word, as we listen to what it is that your spirit is saying to us. Give us hearts to receive from you and to obey you, God. Give us faith to see beyond what our natural eyes can see, to see beyond our, our circumstances and to see you, God. Give us faith to trust you, Lord, as you reveal who you are today through your word. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. As a church, we say, amen. Amen. You may be seated, everyone. Good morning, church. I um, Before I begin, can I just say that it wasn't announced this morning, but I am excited because today we're going to witness two baptisms in the church. We're, well, yes, um, we're going off to a public pool nearby and we're just going to celebrate what God is doing in these people's lives. And so... Um, it's a great day, even though it hasn't happened. I, it is a great day. Um, but also, um, it's great because we're here together. And I believe that the Lord is going to speak to you personally um, through His Word. God is so personal. And God knows and sees what you are going through. And so my prayer is that God will comfort and speak to you in ways that only He can do. Now, if you are new with us, I just want to welcome you. Uh, we are here to help you follow Jesus. And as a church, we have been following uh, a series of the book of Samuel. It's a historic book for the most part, but... We are here to learn about God because ultimately the Bible is a story about Him. And so even through the story of Israel's history, we see the God who chases after us, who pursues us with His great love and invites us into relationship with Him. So here we are at 1 Samuel chapter 8. We are tracing back. Last week we did chapter 9 and we're going to take a step back to chapter 8. If you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow with me, you can open to 1 Samuel 8 chapter 1, uh, sorry, verses 1 to 9. Otherwise, they will be up here on the screen as well. And so verse 1 goes like this, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second son, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. 
Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the leaders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the other nations. But this thing displeased Samuel and they said, when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done before, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So the story is that Israel in that time of history was unique as a nation. And it was unique in a sense that it didn't have a government like all the other nations. The visible symbol of government in Israel was not a palace where a king was enthroned, but rather it was the sanctuary where God was worshipped because God was Israel's king. From time to time, God provided judges, which is why there is the book of Judges in the Bible. And God would provide judges to carry out special tasks of leadership. All acceptable forms of leadership in Israel would acknowledge God as the ultimate ruler over his people. And when Samuel... When he was the prophet of Israel, Israel was often attacked by the Philistines. This is what we covered in the first seven chapters. In chapters four and six particularly, we see that Israel's sin led to a time of judgment. They sinned against the Lord by abandoning him for other gods. And so God did not protect them from their enemies. Now, when the people finally came to their senses and they were ready to turn back to the Lord, they were ready to repent, God raised Samuel to be the judge over Israel. And under Samuel's leadership, the people repented and God gave them victory over their enemies. The Israelites then enjoy this time of peace and prosperity all throughout Samuel's lifetime. You see, Samuel gave solid leadership to Israel during his entire life by leading them in the ways of God. But the story goes that he is the last of the judges to judge Israel. The events of chapter 8 that we just read before take place years, many years after what happened in chapters 4 to 7. And we are told that Samuel is now old. 
he's old enough to have had two adult sons and he's thinking of retirement. And he has appointed his sons as the next judges of Israel. But you see, his sons are not like his father, their father. They have a reputation for taking bribes and corrupting justice. And it was obvious to the elders of Israel that they were not fit to take over Samuel's work. Israel was once again facing a leadership crisis. They were in danger of losing the security and losing the time of prosperity that they had experienced under Samuel's leadership. Now, fed up with Samuel's sons, the, leader, the elders decide to come together and confront Samuel. And they demanded for a change of government. They asked for a king like all the nations. And as we read before, Samuel was not happy with their request. And so he brings, he, he brings this to the Lord in prayer. He took their, their request as a, like a personal rejection on his God-centered leadership. But God reassures him that it's not Samuel's leadership that they're rejecting, but God's. The issue is not the people had actually asked for a king. You see, God had already promised the nation of Israel that he would give them a king. And even in the book of Judges, Israel's need for a king was pointed out, if we see in Judges 21 verse 25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this was presented as a problem, not a good thing. You see, the issue was that the people were asking for a king like all the other nations. That was the issue. Israel wanted to be like all the other nations. You see, Israel were the people of God. They were a special people in a special covenant relationship with the living, almighty creator God. And they were called by God to be holy like he is holy. They were called to be a holy nation. But now, oh sorry, originally, and I'm, this is important for me to point out because often we think the word holy represents being morally pure, which is definitely a part of who God is. But really the original word for holy means to be distinct, to be set apart. So in other words, it means like the nation of, the nation of Israel was called to be unlike God, uh, sorry, unlike the other nations by being like God. All right, the Israelites had this special missional identity and it was to reveal God to all the other nations. But now they are demanding just to be like the other nations. This is more than just a request to change the existing leadership structure. It was a rejection of their identity as God's people. Israel was supposed to be different. 
They were supposed to be the light of the nations. But instead, they wanted to be the same as everyone else. The nations were meant to be learning, watching Israel's life and learning from them. You see, Israel was a weaker nation compared to all the other neighboring nations, which is why the Philistines could bully them for so long. But you see, God had chosen the Israelites so that the, the other nations could learn from them. But instead, they were learning from the other nations. God wanted Israel to live large, to be free, to live by faith and not by sight. But they preferred to live small. They had no higher ambition than to be like all the other nations. The church today is called to be set apart for God. The Apostle Peter uses the language of Israel's identity to describe the identity of the church, our identity as God's people. He says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. This is our distinctive missional identity as God's people. You have been indwelt by the Spirit of God if you have put your faith in Jesus. And that is the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And we have been called as God's people to live by faith, not to live by what we can dictated by what we simply see. Our behavior is to be governed by God's word and not this world. And yet, if we are honest to ourselves, we often struggle with the desire to fit in, don't we? We often struggle with the desire to be accepted and to be looked upon well by everyone else. Anyone who has heard my personal testimony about how God led Edwin and I to find the current home that we, would be, that we are living in now would know just based on our stories, how grateful we are to God for His blessing, for His grace. When we were looking for this home, we asked God for certain things. We prayed about certain things. And God answered all of our prayers and gave us even more than we asked. But I've got to be honest with you. And this is a confession I am making there have been moments when I have compared our two-bedroom apartment, as much as I love it, I genuinely love it, to the beautiful big homes that my high school friends have recently purchased 
close to our area. These are the friends that I grew up with in high school. We have been friends from year eight. We are like a group of, I think, six of us, if I just quickly count in my mind. And we have grown up since year eight till now. We went to a a private school, a high-achieving school. They're all high-achievers. And I'm still grateful. I'm so grateful I could still be part of their lives. But to be honest, my life is so different to the lives that they are going experiencing. And the reality is I will never experience the kind of salary and the kind of career that these amazing women, I went to a, a private women's school, a ladies' school, so that these amazing women are experiencing and have the opportunity to pursue. And I'm talking about doctors. I'm talking about people at director and partner level in really well-known companies. And as soon as I mention them, everyone would know. Isn't comparison the greatest enemy of gratitude? Doesn't it just steal your sense of gratefulness? And the truth is, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but at times I have let comparison lead me on a path of ungratefulness. When the truth is God has done so much for me, He has blessed me more than I deserve. I thank God for his patience, for his mercy, his reminders of what I have been called to are always timely. Ruth, you're called for something else. The truth is I genuinely love this job. I do. I can't think of myself doing anything else. And I left certain things so I could pursue what I'm doing today. And God would often remind me that he has positioned me in my friends' lives to reveal God's love and God's wisdom to them. But the funny thing is if you look at their life and you look at my life in a worldly sense, my life decisions may not make any sense to them. Or it might not even seem attractive to them at all. Seriously. They're like, how's the church They've not stepped foot in a church for the longest time. I think the last time they came to the church was when I was baptized more than 20 years ago. (laughs) Way more than that. How's the church? What does the church do? (laughs) But you see, God did say this in his word. He said, he chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Hey, what's to say God can therefore not use me in their lives? So as far as my circumstances and how God chooses to use them to reveal himself to my friends, I must remember that God is the author of my life. And he knows how to author my life best. You see, we often let the world around us squeeze us into this mold. And the reason why we're so insecure is we allow our identity 
to be shaped and our value to be dictated by the cultures around us rather than by God. You know, by, by determining our value according to how the world sees it, we're automatically devaluing ourselves. Don't compare yourselves to others. God has chosen you. In Christ, you are royal. You are holy. You are God's special possession. And you will only find fulfillment when you let God write your story. When we want to be like the people of this world, we are essentially rejecting our God-given identity and our calling to be the light of the world. In verse 20, the elders then elaborate on their request, on the reason why they have requested for a king. They said, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. But they already had a king who fought for them. Had they forgotten what happened the last time the Philistines tried to attack them at Mizpah? If we look back in 1 Samuel 7 verse 10 to 14, it says that when Samuel was offering a burnt offering, Samuel was offering a burnt offering, The Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord, what did he do? He thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And then the men of Israel then got all the courage to pursue the Philistines. No human government could do that. God had rescued the Israelites in an extraordinary way. And more than that, if we read on to verse 14, it says that he restored what the enemy had taken from them. And he also gave them peace and prosperity. He no longer let the Philistines bully the weak nation of Israel. But it wasn't enough for the nation. The people still wanted to trade this God for a human king. Here, we also observe that when people are in a time of peace and prosperity, and particularly when they really want to stay in that, they are more prone to leaving God's ways than when they are in a time of need. Eugene Pedersen, who wrote the Message Bible, who translated it, he says, prosperity seems to be a more fertile breeding ground for discontent and sin than does poverty. You see, when the Israelites demanded a king, they were essentially rejecting God as their king. And it reflects their failure to trust God. They wanted a human king that they could see instead of a divine king whom they cannot see but is much more powerful 
than anyone else. You see, these people refuse to live by faith. And sadly, this is nothing new. Since the time God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, it's been this repeated pattern that the Israelites would then abandon God for other gods and God would then, uh, there would be a time of judgment and that God would call them back to repentance and that God would save them. The Israelites were historically an unfaithful nation. But really, when we look at our lives, often we are too. From the Garden of Eden onwards, humanity has rejected God's rule. We would rather put our security in things that we can see than in God whom we cannot see. Often this is what we prefer. We would prefer to put our hope in a career and in future investments than in God who is the source of all life. We would rather gain the approval of people than live for the approval of God. We would rather have a king, just like the Israelites, who would take from us than trust a king who would give to us. We must remember when we are worried and we are anxious over things that we cannot control, we have been called to live by faith and not by sight. We cannot trust God when our eyes are fixed only on what we can see, on the problem and the challenges before us. If we don't shift our focus from our problems to God, we end up settling for much less than what God has planned. Because what God has for us is exceedingly and abundantly more than what we could ever imagine. We settle for so much less when all we think about is pursuing what we can see. And that's why the Bible says, cast your anxieties onto God. We exercise our faith when we believe that God actually cares. He actually cares for you. That's how you can live by faith this week, by believing that God actually cares about the details of your life. Now, continuing with the story, God surprisingly says yes to these elders' requests. Like how humble is God that he lets them reject him? He is so humble, but he does so by giving them a clear warning. In 1 Samuel 8 verses 10, we will see the warning here, and you can read it for yourselves. And what? let me just reiterate, in, in verse 11, it says, He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. 
And then in verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. In 14, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. 15, he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants and so on and so forth. And in verse 18, it says, and in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. God warned that the king that they are actually asking for, the king like all the other nations, he's going to take and take and take and take from you. And when the people transfer their expectations for salvation and security from God to a human government, they're sure to be disappointed. Because instead of serving the Lord who wants them to be free and flourish, they will become slaves to a king. And by rejecting the king who saved them out of Egypt, they will find themselves metaphorically back in Egypt. This warning could have not been more serious. But how did Israel respond? Give us a king like all the other nations. You see, the kind of king the Israel's, Israelites wanted, it was very clear. But what they wanted was not what they needed. The heart of Samuel's leadership was calling the people back to the Lord and praying for them. And from this, we see that the kind of leader that Israel needs is not this military hero or genius. Because God is perfectly capable of defeating their enemies without help. As he has done so. And historically, God does not just give them victory. Sorry, God does not just win the victory. He allows them to share in it. And that's the privilege that we as God's people also experience. That we can experience victory, but also share in the glory with God. Israel needed a leader who would simply bring them back to God and lead them in righteousness. And we see that Samuel's leadership ultimately points to the leader we all need. Jesus. He is the one sent by God to bring us back into relationship with God. To intercede for us and to lead us into righteousness. Centuries later, there would be a human Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, asking Jesus, the Son of God, this question. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus would reply, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Yes, I am a king. But I am not a king like all the other nations. 
my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is a king who does not take, but he gives. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is a king who rules by serving. He expresses his power and authority by serving. On the cross, he reveals his kingship, not by miraculously getting off the cross and saving himself, but choosing to be there to save everyone else. And as the church, we have been called to walk in God's ways so that we can reveal God to this world. Is there a more important calling in your life than that? My message to volunteers at our church and to leaders, even as we are about to have our DNA class in a couple of weeks, when we serve in a way that puts all the attention on us, our service doesn't honor God. Timothy Keller puts it this way. He says, when you say I'll serve as long as I'm getting benefits from it, that's not actually serving people. It's serving yourself through them. That's not circling them, orbiting around them. It's using them, getting them to orbit around you. And then in other words, if our serving is motivated by what we can get out of it, by how much admiration we can get out of it, we are not reflecting the heart of God. And the same goes for the way we lead. If we are using our leadership influence to make people admire us and stop there, to make people think well about us, and instead of making them want to know God more, instead of making them want to love God more so that they could be all that God wants them to be and perhaps even better than us, then our leadership doesn't even honour God. It doesn't honour God if it's not about Him. Can we stand in the presence of God? Israel's demand for a king like the other nations, it was in fact a rejection of their God-given identity and a rejection of God as their king. And centuries later, they say they want a God that they could, they want a king that they could see. Centuries later, when Jesus came in the flesh and showed his kingship by the way he loved and served others, the Israelites still echoed the same rebellion as these elders. They still wanted to crucify Jesus. They still said, We have no king but Caesar. You know, in our post-truth culture, it's post-truth. We don't value truth like we used to. We would rather have our preferences and our feelings dictate what is right and what is wrong. 
instead of believing in objective truth. We have confused freedom with autonomy. We think that in order to be free, it means we get to make decisions over our own lives. If you hear the message right now, my body, my right, my body, my right, what does that mean? It means the autonomy I have enables me to live in the freedom I want. But it actually doesn't work that way. Because you see, freedom does, autonomy doesn't actually lead to freedom. Historically, when we see what happened in the Word of God, autonomy led to slavery. We see this right from the Genesis account when the serpent has a conversation with Eve. In Genesis 3, the serpent tells Eve, he, he lies to Eve and he misquotes God's word to Adam. But why was Eve tempted by the lie? You see, the thing about Satan is that he can't force you to sin, but he can tempt you by making sin look enticing and attractive. And so why was the lie that Satan said tempting to Eve? He says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good or evil. You see, it tempted Eve. Because even though she was created to worship God, even though she was created for relationship with God, she wanted to be God. She wanted to be like God. And so we see the story goes that Adam and Eve followed their preference to be autonomous from God. And what happened? They were enslaved to sin and death. You see, like Adam and Eve, we have also restrayed from our relationship with God by rejecting Him, rejecting him as king over our lives because we would prefer to decide what's right and wrong. We would prefer to rule over our lives. But the truth is we make lousy gods and great worshipers because you and I were created to worship ultimately God. Church, God wants to be your king because he is for you. He wants to be your king because he loves you. He wants to be your king because he wants to take you into everything that he has for you that is greater than what you could dream for yourself. So will you respond? Because the thing about salvation is that it also means following Jesus as Lord. If He is not Lord over all your life, then He is not Lord at all. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. We are trusting, God, that Your Word for us will continue to bear fruit in our lives. Lord Jesus,
convictions, the comfort that you have given us today. I ask that you make it, you continue to make it clear to us this week that we would know that you are a king who cares. And you are a king who desires more than we could ever want for our lives. Give us the faith to, to live not by what dictated by what we can see, but to trust in your promises and to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.